Hello, dear listeners. Welcome again to another ESICM podcast. Your host for today is Anna Maria Yuan. I am a critical care doctor in training from Fundacion Jimenez Diaz Hospital in Madrid, Spain, and an ex-committee member. Today, we have the pleasure of having a wonderful guest. It's Dr. Romain Piracchio. Dr. Romain Piracchio is a professor and vice chair of anesthesia and perioperative medicine at UCSF and professor of biostatistics and computational and precision health at UCSF and UC Berkeley. Welcome, Professor Piracchio. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here and to have the opportunity to discuss about our paper. Thank you. The paper that we are going to discuss today is Machine Learning Derived Sepsis Bundle of Care, which has been recently published in the Intensive Care Medicine Journal. Septic shock is the most severe form of sepsis, and it is responsible for more than 2,100 deaths per year. This is the striking introductory phrase that Dr. Piracchio and co-authors used to initiate their article. Dr. Piracchio, please let us know, in the actual context of sepsis management, what is it that motivated your study? Well, it's a very good question. As you, as you mentioned, and that was the first sort of introductory phase in our paper, sepsis is still one of the leading reasons for ICU admission worldwide, and it's still, it's still one of the leading reasons for death in the ICU. So there's still a lot of things that can be done in sepsis. And of course, there's a variety of angles that we can take to improve mortality in sepsis. What those is, one of the angles that we we're interested in looking at is really sort of standardizing care based on the current recommendation. The reason for that is because it's been highlighted in different papers that the more closely the guidelines are being followed, the better the outcome for sepsis and for a variety of other critical care conditions. And so we're, we're interested in, in trying to sort of use current methods like machine learning to help the clinician follow the guidelines. The idea behind that is that if you look at quality improvement studies, which look at training and education of providers to follow the guidelines, in particular the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, no doubt that training people improves the compliance to the guideline, but at the same time, there's some sort of a plateau and there's just like that many guidelines that people are able to follow. In other words, it's difficult to follow uh, dozens of guidelines when we're operating under, under a time constraint. So this is where we're like, well, maybe there is uh, a need to prioritize among the guide, the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, the one that should really be the focus of our attention during the first couple of hours to make sure that the patient benefit from these guidelines and potentially that, that we're improving mortality. And so this is where we're interested in, in, in using machine learning because the way we're trying to do to, to sort of look at machine learning in our lab, in our group, is really to help with clinical decision support. And we deeply believe that machine learning is not here to sort of replace the experts, but it's here to augment the expert. And in this case, uh, it was sort of a nice way to look at machine learning with the angle of augmentation in a sense that machine learning here is not used to develop any sort of guidelines. It is used to really identify among the guidelines that were developed by experts, the one that should be prioritized. So this is this was sort of our, our thought process when we designed the study. I see. Thank you for your answer. And I think that here you reminded us of a very important aspect that machine learning is here not to replace experts, but to be an aid for their work. 
as you also mentioned, uh, this is the first study using machine learning to prioritize the surviving sepsis campaign recommendations that should be applied during the first 24 hours following sepsis onset. Could you please briefly describe the methods of the study? Absolutely. So we we plan the study as follows in order to be able to essentially identify some guidelines that should be prioritized and then to sort of evaluate whether or not these guidelines that were identified in the first phase of our study were uh, are actually associated with some mortality reduction. So the first thing that I have to mention is that in this paper, uh, we've been working with publicly available data from two important data sets, uh, both coming from the U.S., one called MIMIC-4, which is now largely known in the critical care community as being, you know, the most widely used publicly available data sets for research. It's coming from Boston, from the Diaconis uh, Medical Center. It's coming from a couple of ICUs within the same center. And it encompasses like about, about 80,000 patients now, or ICU admissions, I should say. Uh, so that's one data set that we use. The other data set that we use for external validation, say, uh, it's called the EICU dataset. Uh, it's a very large dataset that comes from a slightly different setting in the sense that it is multi-centric uh, by nature because it is data coming from a tele-ICU program across the U.S. So there's about 200,000 patients included there uh, that were all monitored through a tele-ICU program. So these are the two data sets that, that we've used. And I wanted to mention that just you know to be very clear about the fact that the, this paper is retrospective in the sense that it's based on, on retrospective data. So basically meaning that the next step that we, I'm sure we'll discuss in the rest of the interview will be to prospectively validate our findings. So the way we've used this data is again, like it was sort of sequential. The first thing is that we've selected the survival acceptance campaign guidelines that we're able to identify as being followed or not followed within the, the data that we, have, we had access to. Then once we sort of identified this group of survival sepsis campaign guidelines that could be identified, we've looked at the overall relationship between the rate of compliance and mortality. This is something that has been done before. And again, as I was mentioning in the introduction, the vast majority of the studies have shown that the more guidelines are being followed, the better the outcome. So we wanted to confirm that with our data. Then we sort of took the next step, which was sort of the core analysis in our paper, which is really the definition of this bundle based uh, on a machine learning approach that I'm sure we will discuss later in the interview. And then once this bundle was, was actually defined, we looked at the mortality among patients that uh, in whom the bundle was followed versus mortality in patients in whom the bundle was not followed in MIMIC, as well as externally in EICU. And then we did a bunch of subgroup analysis to sort of confirm the robustness of our results. So this is sort of the way we divided up the, the study. Thank you for clarifying the details of the methodology. Could you please describe the um, method of determining the optimal bundle of recommendations? Absolutely. So we used, I would say, relatively common approach here, which is called a penalized model. And the type of penalized model we use is called, is called LASSO. Uh, so it's something that has been described and, and proposed a couple of decades ago already. And has, that has gained a, a lot of attraction among the statistical community because of its robustness and, and some of its properties. But the way it sort of function is, one of the problems with models in general is that there is a chance and the more data adapted the models are, the more the higher the risk of overfeeding. And by overfeeding, I mean 
you know, being able to model extremely closely the data with the risk that the, mo that the model actually sort of models the, the noise as much as it models the signal. So in order to, to sort of evaluate whether or not the model is feeding accurately the data or is overfeeding the data, we as statisticians tend to look at the performance of the model by looking at not only at the bias, which sometimes can be very minimal, but comes at the cost of overfeeding, but the ratio of bias over uh, variability. So this bias-variance trade-off is really something that we're interested in looking at when we're, when we're building model to make sure, again, that we're not overfeeding the model too much. Uh, the data too much, sorry. The lasso approach is, is, a, is an approach that has been described to actually optimize this bias tra uh, variance trade-off. But the, the way it's actually doing that is essentially by putting some boundaries on the, the error that the model has, and it will essentially eliminate through a repetitive process, it will eliminate some of the predictors from the model that are likely to, to have a weight in the prediction that is really close to zero. So in other words, if you throw into this models like a bunch of, of potential predictors, the model will use, again, like a, a repetitive approach using generally methods like cross-validation to select and reduce the dimensionality of the prediction towards only a subset of predictors that have actually a non-zero uh, impact on the outcome of interest. So the reason why we've used that in this case is because we knew that we had a bunch of recommendations that we wanted to look at and we wanted to sort of evaluate their association with, with mortality, of course, adjusting for severity and other factors. And what we wanted, what we wanted to do is exactly that, reduce the dimension of this large set of, of recommendations to a subset of the recommendation that are as that are based on the data associated with a non-zero coefficient with uh, the primary outcome, which in this case was mortality. An interesting way to use this, to apply this approach, which initially was not necessarily done for selecting recommendation, but more for, again, coming up with a simpler model and a model that would be more robust to any variability in the data. But in our case, uh, it was nicely applied to the clinical question, which was, again, to come up with a, a, a smaller subset of recommendation that would sort of optimize the prediction of mortality. Dr. Pirakio, I think this is a very clear and complete explanation. We thank you for that. You have already mentioned the primary outcome of the study, which was mortality. Could you please comment on the outcomes that you further studied? Yes, that's a good question. You know, uh, that's I would say, you know, that's one of the limitations that we usually have when we're uh, working with publicly available data in a sense that constraint to use the outcome that is available in the data. In, in this case, we opted for all-cost 28-day mortality, first of all, because it was available both in Munich and in EICU. It's, you know, an outcome of interest for, for the critical care community. And also, it is, again, it was available and there was close to zero missing data for this outcome in the, in, in the two data sets. So that's the reason why we sort of very pragmatically opted for this outcome, acknowledging that other outcomes would could have been interesting and especially outcomes that look at mortality a little sort of farther in time and there's of course like a lot of now a lot of interest for 90 days or even 180 in mortality for septic patients but unfortunately we were not able to look at this outcome so the same sort of process was used to select a couple of secondary outcomes again we 
acknowledge that the other secondary outcome would have been interesting, which was our constraint with the data availability. And so we, the secondary outcome that we're able to identify and to work on were uh, mechanical ventilation during the first 20 days of ICU admission, renal replacement therapy during the same time frame, and ICU length of stay. Of stay. So a relatively small uh, set of secondary outcome, but again, uh, related to the, the data that we have uh, had access to. Thank you. In such a complex study, such as the one that you performed, what are the results that you would like to share with us? Yes, thanks. Uh, so uh, I think the, the first uh, thing that we wanted to do, as I mentioned previously, was really as more as a sanity check, I want to say, uh, to confirm the, the results that were already obtained elsewhere, meaning confirm the fact that there is indeed in the data that we've used a relationship uh, between the compliance rate to the survival sepsis campaign guidelines and mortality. So we looked at all the survival sepsis campaign guidelines that were identifiable in the data that, that we've used. And we looked at, again, the compliance, the relationship between compliance rates and mortality. And we actually uh, were able to replicate the results that were already published elsewhere in a sense that Essentially, uh, the higher the compliance rate, the lower the mortality. This holds true for unadjusted analysis as well as in the adjusted analysis, adjusting for the usual sort of severity marker. So that was sort of the first result that was for us more of a sanity check to make sure that we're able to, that the data that we had access to sort of uh, reflected the current uh, knowledge on the topic. So uh, then moving on to really what was the core of our analysis, we've applied this lasso model, and we're able to come up with a pretty robust a set of six recommendations. And when I'm saying robust, I mean that, you know, we did a series of, of sensitivity analysis, looking at the data in a different way, in different ways, and we pretty much always selected the same six recommendations from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guideline. And these recommendations were recommendation about antimicrobial use, use of balanced crystalloid, insulin therapy, steroid, vasopressin use as a secondary agent, and bicarb. The one thing I wanted to mention here, because I realized that, uh, and based on some, so some interaction I had with a colleague after the publication of the paper, I realized that this may have been like a little bit misleading. Really, the thing that we've looked at here are not the use of this specific therapy or meds. What we're looking at is whether this recommendation were followed. Meaning, uh, for instance, if we look at insulin therapy, the guidelines say that we should start insulin therapy if the blood sugar is above 180, which means that the way we coded that was that if a patient added a glucose level of more than 180 and did not receive insulin, that was coded as recommendation not followed. If this patient, uh, if uh, the same patient did receive insulin, this was coded as uh, a, a recommendation that was followed. Now, if another patient has a blood sugar of 150, if this patient was not given insulin, this patient was also considered as a recommendation being followed. While, of course, if this patient was uh, under insulin with an initial blood sugar of, of uh, 150, he was, uh, this was considered as, as non-compliance with the recommendation. So it's really important to really, uh, again, emphasize on the fact that we're looking at recommendation compliance and not at the specific treatments, really whether or not the, the recommendation were followed. So again, we're able to identify the six, this bundle of six recommendations, 
But the next step was probably the most important one in the sense that we wanted to make sure that the bundle that we identified was associated with reduction in mortality. I looked at the patient uh, in whom the, the six recommendations were applied, and we called this group the bundle group. And we compare the mortality of this group to the group of patients where at least one of the recommendation, one of the six recommendations was not followed. And we call this group uh, the non-bundle group. And in order to be able to make sure that these groups were similar enough and that we were, we, we were able to compare the mortality between the two groups, well, we propensity matched them to make sure that the, the, the two groups were actually similar enough. And we checked that, that the propensity matching actually sort of balanced the distribution of the covariates across the two groups, which was the case. And so based on that, we're able to compare mortality. And we actually showed that the bundle group, again, all six recommendations followed, uh, was associated with a lower, lower mortality than the non-bundle group. Again, at least one of the six recommendations not followed. And this was consistent, you know, across uh, the, the internal validation sets, the uh, meaning MIMIC, and the external validation set, meaning EICU. So then the, the next step that we took was to look at whether or not there was an association between the number of recommendations that were followed and mortality. And so in the bundle group, we're interested in looking at the impact of adding more recommendations than the six recommendations including the bundle. So in other words, in this group, everybody has at least the, the six recommendations followed. We wanted to look at the difference in mortality for people who had six plus one plus two plus three plus four. And we actually didn't find any difference in mortality based on the additional, on the number of additional recommendations that were followed in this group. Now, interestingly enough, in the non-bundle group, so the group that had at least one of the six recommendations missing, we did find a linear relationship between the number of recommendations that were omitted and mortality. In other words, patients with five out of the six followed had a better outcome than patients with only one of the six recommendations followed, which was interesting and sort of also uh, speaking to the robustness of our results. And finally, we did a bunch of subgroup analysis and we especially tried to, to see if there was any sort of differential uh, impact of, of the recommendation based on the on the, the sepsis uh, subphenotypes that were described uh, previously, and we didn't really find any any substantial difference, uh, meaning that you know the six recommendations seem to apply to a variety of of, of patients with sepsis. Excellent. Uh, thank you for your previous uh, clarification. I think uh, it is uh, very revealing for us and. Given your previous uh, words, could you, if there were a take-home message to transmit to our listeners, what would be it? That's a very good question. I think, you know, the, maybe the first take-home message is that if you are implementing a quality improvement project or work at your institution, at your ICU, and you want to improve the compliance to recommendation for sepsis patient, I think it is very legitimate to identify a subgroup of recommendations that you really want to make sure your doctors are complying to. And it's just only sort of relying on the very long list of recommendations in the survival campaign and try to 
have everyone sort of adhere to all of them is probably going to be less impactful and certainly trying to really reduce that to really a core a number of recommendations that are really important uh, to reduce mortality again during the first phase of sepsis i'm not talking about the entirety of stay which obviously includes includes a lot more therapeutic actions but for the first phase of sepsis i think it's, it's probably important to focus on a subset that you really want to optimize the compliance for. And, you know, based on our results, we, we believe that, you know, the six recommendations that were identified sort of make sense from a clinical standpoint. They are very consistent with the, the, the quality of the evidence that was built to actually select them in the surveillance and sepsis campaign guidelines. So I think it is a reasonable sort of way to start with if you want to define a subset of recommendation. I would still, of course, emphasize on the fact that this results needs to be need to be prospectively validated first and so i'm not you know saying in any way that these six recommendations are sort of set in stone but more that this is sort of a first step of probably you know a series of prospective work that should probably look into validating the bundle uh, in a prospective manner and probably you know uh, some of this uh, uh, there will be some variability of the bundle across different institution, different type of patients. So I wouldn't be surprised that this bundle could sort of be more more personalized. But, but I think more importantly than really the six recommendations that were identified here, I think what is important is really the proof of concept that a subset of the guidelines should be identified to, uh, and that we should sort of focus on that during the first couple of hours of treatment for our, sepsis, uh, our septic patients. Perfect. Professor, as an expert in the field, what could you tell us about the importance of machine learning in the ICU? Oh, well, that's a very broad question, and thanks for asking it. It's, it of course, I will start by saying that I'm, I am biased here in the sense that I've been working on machine learning for more than 15 years now. So I am, of course, uh, I tend to be very optimistic and very sort of trustful that there is actually a potential real impact of machine learning in the way we're providing critical care. I will start by saying that Again, and repeating the, what I said as an introduction, that I think the clear message to convey to, to the people who are listening to us is that machine learning is really meant to augment human intelligence. And in fact, I'm one of those saying that, that the, the, the name uh, artificial intelligence should probably be abandoned or changed because it is, we're not talking, talking about intelligence. We're just talking about machine being actually fast and very competent at, at making very complex calculations, but not really intelligent. So, uh, but that's sort of a side, a side topic. What I'm trying to say here is that really the way machine learning can be integrated in critical care is by augmenting our expertise uh, as critical care physician. And there's a variety of ways machine learning can actually do that. The first thing is that it is probably one of the best way to reduce the dimensionality of the information that we have access to. And by dimensionality, I mean, we have access, if we only take into account the monitor, which is of course a big reduction of the data that we're, we have access to, we have access to a variety of other data, including imaging, labs, et cetera. But even if you were only looking at the, at the monitor, there is an incredible amount of information generated there in real time with a very high granularity. And it's just impossible for the human eye and the human brain to catch the pattern, uh, especially when the pattern is actually multidimensional. So this is where having essentially a computer that sort of processes that and reduces the information to some sort of 
numbers that summarize the information at stake here and sort of give us additional information for us to process with a dimensionality that is actually processable for us with our human brain is, is already very important. So that's one thing, really sort of summarizing the information from the monitor and from, from the rest of the data that we have access to. Then I think, you know, the next step is to sort of integrate that and define ways to use this new information for uh, clinical decision support. I think this is what we need. We, we know as experts what the different sort of strategies are, but we sometimes would benefit from being sort of oriented towards like a subset of potential things that we should prioritize uh, so that we actually sort of cherry pick from a smaller from a smaller set of options to again make decisions and make actions like in a little more uh, timely fashion and then of course one of the big goal is to make decisions in a much more personalized and, and, and precise uh, fashion uh, to really be able to target and tailor our treatment to the patient and not to really strictly apply results that were obtained at the, obtained at the population level so this is this is sort of the, the uh, I think sort of all the options that machine learning can actually offer us uh, in the future in the ICU. I will say that there's a number of limitations at this point that still need to be worked on and overcome, including integration to the, the clinical workflow, uh, training of the clinicians, understanding how to better sort of uh, interface the computer with the clinical expert. And also actually make sure that we're, when we're choosing to deploy a machine learning model, make sure that we're deploying the right one. One There's actually a variety and a wealth of machine learning models that have been, you know, proposed, but only very few of them have proven their value. So I think before jumping to the inflammation part, we need to start proving the value of this machine learning approach and prove that they actually benefit our patient and benefit all our patients, including patients that may be underrepresented uh, in the data. So, so there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to prove the value and then jump to implementation. But I'm very hopeful that this can actually be very transformative in the way of providing critical care. Thank you, Professor Piracchio. It was a real pleasure, all the valuable information. I am sure that your article has already raised the wide interest among our listeners. Thank you for your attention, and I remind you that the article is available in Intensive Care Medicine Journal. This is Dr. Ana Maria Yuan. See you in the next episode.